the gracious Savior we have, that he would take those words on his lips for us. We'll um, read that same psalm now, Psalm 22. I thought about uh, preaching Psalms 22 to 24 together as I've uh, preached each of those in the past, but um, decided uh, each of these psalms are just too rich, and so we'll look at Psalm 22 itself this morning, then 23 and 24 next week before I'm taking a break from the Psalms. Um, Psalm 22, it's on page 539 in, in the Pew Bibles, where we read this Psalm of the Cross, as um, Spurgeon has called it, to the choir master, according to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of David. It writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you. At my mother's breast, on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion, and poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me. From the horns of the wild oxen, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard When he cried to him, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. 
My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down or shall bow all who go down to the dust even the one who could not keep himself alive posterity shall serve him it shall be told of the lord the coming generation they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it as far the reading of god's word Beloved, as we've been uh, making our way through the Psalms, we've been making the point that um, the Psalms are to be read in context, not to be read as, as some haphazard arrangement of randomly selected songs, but the way that we read any other book of the Bible, um, chapter by chapter, and telling a story. A story that uh, Psalms 1 and 2 introduce to us about a blessed man who is king who delights in God's law, and, and yet those who hate God's law and say, and in Psalm 2, let us, let us burst their bonds apart, let us, let us cast the, the cords of God's law off from us. Those who hate God's law hate the king, and they plot in vain against him. Plotting, Psalm 2 says, against the Lord's anointed. They take counsel together about how they might destroy him. And yet, even though he is rejected by man, this king is accepted by God, who it says in Psalm 2, laughs at those who reject him and says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he speaks to those enemies in his wrath and exalts his king, who, who is actually revealed to be his son. We see in Psalm 2, the very, very entryway into the Psalter, that the rejected king will be accepted by God. That's the theme to which we're, we're introduced, the entryway into the Psalms. And then we come to Psalms 3 through 14, which picture the rejection of that king by man, pictured in the life of David, who's, who's something of a type of the king to come. Psalms 3 through 14 show the nations raging and, and the peoples plotting in vain against God's king. Before Psalms 15 through, through 24 then, show that king accepted by God. That little sub-collection, Psalms 15 to 24, is bracketed in Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 with these, these psalms about the righteous one entering into God's holy hill and ascending into his presence. And it's right in, in the midst of that section of the psalms that we find Psalm 22. We've just seen Psalms 20. And 21, how the Lord will answer his king in the day of his affliction. How he will save him in the day of his great battle. And now we're brought to the battlefield itself and, and shown that great battle on the day of the king's affliction. The day in which he offered a sacrifice to God and was saved by God's strength. That's what we find in Psalm 22, the first 
uh, 21 verses showing us the suffering of God's king, and then the last 10 verses showing us the glory of the king. Even as Christ says in Luke 24 that Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms speak of the Messiah first suffering before he then enters into his glory. That's what we have in Psalm 22, uh, suffering unto glory. And so look at me first at the Messiah's suffering. And we got to say, I say Messiah because of, of how these two psalms, or th- this psalm follows Psalms 20 and 21. These two psalms we looked at in the last couple of weeks, which we saw are messianic, that the church of the Old Testament praying for the anointed Messiah to come of Psalm 20, verse 6, the one who in Psalm 21 will be given a crown of fine gold and uh, length of days forever and ever. And so these, these two psalms are, are looking into the future to the Messiah about whom David has been speaking ever since Psalm 15. And so when, when we look at Psalm 22, we see the, the Messiah's suffering and glory. Uh, first of all, because of how it follows from these two psalms just before it. But the other reason we use that language of, of, of the Messiah's suffering to speak of Psalm 22 is because of how the New Testament uses this psalm. Quotes it some 13 times. Nine of those quotations of this psalm come in the, the gospel accounts of Christ's crucifixion and death, making the point emphatically that, that David was not ultimately writing of himself, but when he speaks of his hands and feet being pierced, or when he speaks of himself going down to the dust of death, whatever suffering he might have known, uh, this suffering looks far beyond that to the one who would quote this psalm on the cross. It's very first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And also it's last, that he has done it, which could be translated, it is finished. In fact, many think that, that when Jesus says that on the cross, he's alluding to Psalm twenty-two thirty-one, signaling that he is the fulfillment of the entirety of this psalm from beginning to end. It is, as Spurgeon said, the psalm of the cross, the psalm of the Christ, whose suffering is is described in this psalm in terms of both agonizing distance from God, but also terrifying silence. I see that at the very beginning of the psalm, or in verse 1, it says that that God is, is so far from saving him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning. And then we see in verse, verse 2 that God does not answer these words of groaning. These words of groaning like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he says he cries out by day and even by night, but hears no answer. Agonizing distance and terrifying silence. God is not near and will not answer. In contrast to the experience of Israel, which we see in in verses 3 through 5, who who trusted in God, verse 4, and and he delivered them. Even a, a sinful, rebellious people in the wilderness who he continued time after time to hear their cries. Verse 5, they cried out to him and they were rescued. They were not put to shame, even though they deserved to be. But the king, the righteous one, he is put to shame. 
He says that he's become like a worm and not a man. He is scorned by mankind, despised by the people, the very one who is at this moment, you think of, of Christ uh, crying this out on the cross, the very one who in that moment is upholding the lives, the bodies of those who are striking him, spitting on him, and mocking him. He is upholding their lives in that moment. They're treating him not like the God who he is, the omnipotent one, but they're treating him like a worm, like less than human. Everyone who sees him mocks him, says they make faces at him and they they wag their heads, they, they shake their heads at him in disapproval, saying he trusted in God, let God deliver him. Let God rescue him, for he supposedly delights in him. This is like the mocking of Psalm 3, verse 2. Many say of his life, there is no salvation for him in God. This is precisely what happened to Christ on the cross. You you read Matthew chapter 27. It speaks of those who passed by deriding him and wagging their heads at him, saying, save yourself. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he so delights in him. But at this point, God doesn't deliver Even though from from his time in the womb, his miraculous conception and his nursing at his mother's breast, God had been his God and cared for him. Now God is far. Trouble is near, but there's no one to help. The bulls encompass him, strong bulls of Bashan surround him, roaring lions open their mouths at him, dogs encompass him. He uses this, this animal imagery to describe his, his fierce enemies are like beasts before him. They're like dogs, bulls, lions. You must picture a, a bullfight where a, a matador is, is all alone with not just one, but multiple raging bulls charging at him. Or a lion in the games at, at the Colosseum raging and roaring at one of the Christians left undefended. This is the kind of imagery that Psalm 22 evokes. Maybe you can think of a slave memoir that that speaks of dogs chasing runaways, trained to to attack them and maul them. It's this kind of imagery the king uses to describe the way that his enemies seek to kill him. And notice how each of these pictures that he gives us are, are in the plural. He says, many bulls, strong bulls, they've surrounded him. The dogs of verse 16 are spoken of as a company who have encircled him. This animal imagery makes us shudder, as it did the king, who after each reference to these beasts speaks of himself as being near unto death. He's being poured out like water. Verse 14, the cup is almost empty. All of his bones are out of joint. He says that his heart melts within him. Verse 15, his strength is dried up like a pot shirt. His his, uh, tongue sticks to his dry mouth as he thirsts. As it laid down in the dust of death. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why we know this psalm is not ultimately about David because he is not writing about himself having died. Verse 16, his hands and feet being pierced, but is writing of the king to come. 
Perhaps in some way born out of his own experience, but, but in describing his experience, the king uses what we call prophetic hyperbole to point beyond himself to another. Dale Ralph Davis says he speaks here not as historical David, but as dynastic David, depicting his descendant in terms of his own suffering, yet a suffering that goes beyond the bounds of what he himself endured. David, as in so many of the Psalms, spoke out of his suffering yet beyond it and into the suffering of another, namely Jesus, the son of David in whom verse 15 is fulfilled in his thirst on the cross, verse 16 in his hands and feet being pierced, verse 17 in none of his bones being broken, verse 18 in the soldiers casting lots for his clothing having stripped him. You can see why Spurgeon called this, beyond all others, the psalm of the cross. Christ fulfills every line. It is, Spurgeon said, the photograph of his saddest hours, the record of his dying words, the vial of his last tears, and the memorial of his expiring joys. And it gives us a window into the heart of the crucified Christ. It's one of the the things that the Psalms do for us so beautifully. We we have in the the gospel accounts the the details, the the narrative of what happened from a a sort of third-person perspective. As one of my professors said in, in the Psalms, we have something of the diary of the heart of the Messiah who first spoke by his spirit through David in a way that then points to, to what would be fulfilled in his own suffering. We're given here in Psalm 22 a window into the heart of the crucified Christ who was forsaken by God so that you and I did not have to be. Who cries out to God, verse 19, in our place, Lord, don't be far off, but come quickly to my aid. Deliver my my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, and save me from the mouth of the lion. And then with that cry, the middle of verse 21 ends this section on his suffering. The answer to which is given in the second half of the verse through the end of the psalm where we see now Messiah's glory. Remember Jesus said in Luke 24 that it was necessary for the Messiah to first suffer before entering into his glory. And so the the first half of this psalm predicts his suffering and then the last part, his resurrection glory. So look with me now at the glory of the risen Christ, who having cried out to God to save him, uh, says in, in the last part of verse 21, you can, you can sort of imagine a lengthy pause between save me from the mouth of the lion and that last part that we find in verse 21, a pause of about three days and three nights. He says, you have rescued me. Literally, you have answered me. The very thing that God was not doing back in verse 2. This is, this is the same word that he used there in verse 2 when he said, uh, you do not answer. That's the same word that's used now in verse 21. You have answered by rescuing me from the horns of the wild ox and by saving me from the mouth of the lion. The very thing that God was not doing back in verse 2 when the king cried out by day and by night, but God did not answer. Now he does. 
He hadn't answered that cry, why have you forsaken me? But now, now that the king has brought, been brought down, verse 15, to the dust of death, buried in the grave, an answer comes. Boys and girls, what is that answer to the king's cry? It's the resurrection. Where the father says, as he did in Psalm 16, I will not abandon my holy one to decay. I will not let him be ashamed, but will save him from the mouth of the lion. Even as God does that with with Daniel in the lion's den, he'll do it with Christ, saving him from the mouth of the lion. Unexpected, after having read those first 21 verses, and yet God does the unexpected. Moving in an instant, one writer says, from an abyss of misery to an anthem of joy, from Death Valley to Mount Everest, from despair to praise, from horror to hallelujah. That's the movement from verse 21a to 21b, from horror to hallelujah. Impossible relief out of hopeless despair which is the same exact powder that we find in the gospel accounts of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. We're in the face of, of the darkness of Calvary and in the face of, of the dejection and sadness of, of those disciples. Think of, again, Luke 24. We, we thought that he had been the Messiah, but, but he's died, and much more. It's now been three days. In the face of that darkness and dejection shines an empty tomb and an occupied throne. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, his ascension which we just celebrated on Thursday, are God's answer to his forsaken Messiah. Unexpected deliverance in answer to Christ's prayer. Which is then announced in verses 22 to 26 to Christ's brothers and in verses 27 to 31 to the nations. As the suffering but now glorified Messiah is exalted before all men. So the announcement of that um, exaltation and deliverance is what we hear and read in the rest of the psalm where Christ says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. That verse, actually, Hebrews chapter 2 quotes and uh, puts on the lips of Jesus, saying that he is the the speaker of Psalm 22. And the first thing he does after God answers his cry is to announce that salvation to his brothers. Matthew 28, go and tell my brothers, he says. He wants the good news of his death and resurrection declared to those with, with whom he shares a family relation by grace. And Hebrews 2 says that he continues to declare this good news to his brothers as the worship leader of his church, leading us in song and and proclaiming his good news to us week after week in the preaching of the gospel. That's what Christ, according to Hebrews 2, is doing. Every week as we gather for worship, he is proclaiming God's answer to his suffering in the resurrection. That all who fear God would praise him and stand in awe of him for not despising or abhorring the affliction of his afflicted one, nor hiding his face, but hearing when he cried to him. And so he praises God in the midst of the congregation, performing his vows before God's people. 
Psalm 22 presents Christ as the mediator of our worship, leading us in song before God in response to what he's done in the death and resurrection of his son. Christ is the song leader of his people. He is the one who's, who's proclaiming the gospel to us in the preaching of the word, even offering a votive offering in verse 25, a, a vow that's accompanied by sacrifice, followed then in verse 26 by a feast. A sacrificial meal commemorating his death and resurrection that is, is shared with his afflicted saints who seek him that their hearts would be made glad. Sounds a little bit like what we did last week in the Lord's Supper. The risen and ascended Christ is here pictured as present with his people in their worship, leading them in song as they sing the songs of Zion, preaching his word to them, in which his saving work is the central theme, and then sharing a spiritual, Eucharistic, thanksgiving meal with them to gladden their hearts, to make them eat and be satisfied that their hearts live forever. What a beautiful picture this last half of the psalm is of new covenant worship in all of its beautiful simplicity. Word, sacrament, psalms mediated by Christ who is both preacher and host, song leader and subject who by proclaiming his rescue from death to us makes our hearts glad and assures us that just as God did not despise the affliction of Christ the afflicted one, neither will he despise our affliction. As we're united to him, as we're united to him and so reminded that we have a sympathetic Savior, this one who so suffered in our place that we know whatever suffering we face in this life, we are not ultimately alone, nor do we fail to have a Savior and priest who can sympathize with us. And even as we see, though there was a long period of crying out and hearing no answer in the case of Jesus, even as we see that deliverance and salvation eventually coming, so we are reminded as we gather each week and hear the proclamation of our suffering, crucified, but eventually exalted and risen king, so we're reminded that God will not despise the affliction and the cries and groans of his people either. All of that we're reminded as we gather and the presence of the risen Christ for worship. You're, you think of those words in Matthew chapter 18, where he says that as we gather in his presence, there in Matthew 18, it's in the context of the pronouncement of church discipline in the corporate assembly, where my people are gathered publicly for, for corporate worship, there I am with them. Christ is present in our midst, Romans chapter 10. He's the one who is proclaiming his word to us. We're reminded here at the end of Psalm 22 what a a beautiful privilege and opportunity we have to gather as God's people in the presence of the risen Christ for the purpose not only of exalting the Lord, verse 23, being edified ourselves, verse 26, but also of evangelizing the nations as we proclaim the gospel of our risen Lord Jesus. That's what we see in verses 27 to 31 where Christ wants this worship and this proclamation of his death and resurrection to go not only to his brothers, not only to us, but to the ends of the earth. Verse 27, he says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship you 
For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. This is the very thing that was promised at Psalm chapter 2, at the very beginning of the Psalms. The nations shall be your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession, as I set my, my king on my holy hill. This is Christ being given the nations. This is Christ being given all authority in heaven and on earth. This is the resurrected and now ascended king being promised the nations that as the word of the gospel goes out, verse 22, through his own preaching, all the prosperous of the earth, verse 29, will be brought to the feast down to those who are dying. From the least of them to the greatest, they'll worship him. They'll worship him together as one people, one body, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor. Psalm 22 envisions the kingdom of the crucified, risen and ascended, now glorified Messiah extending to the very ends of the earth. Just like Psalm 72 that we read on on Thursday night, from the river to the ends of the earth, uh, uh, kings of, of nations will come and render their gifts. Desert tribes will bow down before him as king. And not only will his dominion extend to the ends of the earth, but in verses 30 and 31, to the end of the age. It says, posterity shall serve him. It will be told of the Lord to a coming generation. His righteousness shall be proclaimed to a people yet unborn that he has done it. As we said earlier, that it is finished. The victory and salvation of God's king and what he has accomplished in his substitutionary death on the cross, which God was pleased with and then proves in the resurrection, showing that he accepted the offering of his Messiah. That victory and salvation, the same victory and salvation that's prophesied in Psalms 20 and 21, which comes after this great battle of Psalm 22, will be proclaimed in every age and every nation to a people yet unborn that it is finished. And that the salvation of this king equals the salvation of his people so that all who trust in him, all who are joined to him by faith and repentance, confessing, as we were reminded earlier in the reading of the law and our song of confession, that we are sinners who deserve God's wrath and judgment. We deserve what we read of here that Jesus experienced. But by grace, he condescended See that in verses 9 through 11, it talks about his, his conception in the womb and his, his birth uh, entering in to, to suffer in our place. Die on the cross, verses 15 and 16, be buried in the dust of death, and then rise from the dead for our salvation. That's what we're called to believe. That's what Psalm 22 if you're here this morning as one who has not confessed Jesus Christ, who, who does not believe the gospel, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Psalm 22 is calling us to believe in the crucified but now risen Messiah in whom it is finished and there is nothing more to add to what he's done. But all who trust in him and, and this salvation that is proclaimed, verse 31, this righteousness of Christ that is proclaimed, a righteousness that's not our own, but his given to us, all who trust in that will likewise be saved. 
That's why in the Psalms that come just before this, the people are rejoicing and shouting for joy at God's salvation of the king. Because they recognize that, that their life is, is bound up in his. And the very enthronement of, of uh, Psalm 21 is for the sake of his people. Remember, if you were here last week, in Psalm 21.6, he has made a blessing forever so that he might mediate God's blessing to his people. Uh, the deliverance from death that God gives his Messiah might then be theirs too. The length of days forever and ever that God gives his Messiah in Psalm 21.4 might also be ours by faith. The joy and, and satisfaction of Psalm 22.26, all of this belongs not only to Christ, but to those who are his for whom he fought this great battle and suffered. That's why he was so eager to tell his brothers what God had done. That's why the first words that come out of his mouth are, are go and tell my brothers. I want to tell my brothers what God has done and proclaim the, the name of God, meaning all that he's done in, in the gospel. I want to proclaim that to my brothers. The reason why he was so eager to do that is because all of this suffering was for them. That's why he was so eager to tell his brothers all that was accomplished in his death and resurrection was for them. It is finished. He has done it. And all that's left for us to do is to bask in the joy of God's salvation of his son, to praise him for it, And to then, out of the overflow of the joy that we have in this good news, to proclaim it to the ends of the earth. That's what the end of this psalm gets at. So I want to just make a couple of of closing points of application from these last verses. First, we see in them a call to proclaim the gospel of God's once forsaken but now exalted Messiah to the ends of the earth. He's given the nations. In verse 28, he's... He's promised that all of the ends of the earth will remember his salvation and and God's people then in verse 30 are implicitly tasked with telling the coming generation by proclaiming the righteousness of Christ in whom it is finished to a people yet unborn. Psalm 22 involves us, the people of the king, in proclaiming his kingdom. It even motivates us to do so because it tells us that his kingdom will advance to the end of the world and to the end of the age. As we'll sing in a little bit, the ends of all the earth shall hear and turn unto the Lord in fear. He's promised it. And so we take this good news and we proclaim it with a holy optimism. Some of you know the old Princeton professor Charles Hodge and his son, um, A.A. Hodge, who would later teach there as well. Um, David Calhoun, in his, his history of Princeton Seminary, tells the story of young uh, 10-year-old Archibald Alexander Hodge and his little sister, Mary Elizabeth, in 1833, sending a letter along with a, a recent seminary graduate who was heading off to be a missionary in what's now Sri Lanka. That letter that this little 10-year-old boy and his young sister had written said, um, Dear heathen, The Lord Jesus hath promised that the time shall come when all the ends of the earth shall be his kingdom. And God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. So if this was promised by a being who cannot lie, then why do you not help it to come sooner by reading the Bible, 
at attending to the words of your teachers, loving God, renouncing your idols, and to take Christianity into your temples. And soon there will be not a nation, no, not a space of ground as large as a footstep that will need a missionary. My sister and I have, by small self-denials, procured $2, which are enclosed in this letter to buy tracts and Bibles to teach you. Sincerely, Archibald Alexander Hodge and Mary Elizabeth, friends of the heathen. The heart of Psalm 22 had, had captured the hearts of those young children. It had not moved them to inactivity, but to give and pray for the advance of Christ's kingdom. So may it be with us, even, even you uh, boys and girls, that you would give and pray for the missionary work of Christ's church, that his kingdom would advance to the ends of the earth and the ends of the age. And young people, would you consider whether God might have a part for you to play in going or, or sending or supporting or praying or, or translating so that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, to the end of of the age. That's the first very simple yet very significant application of Psalm 22. And then second, this psalm calls us not only to proclaim this good news of God's once forsaken but now exalted Messiah to the ends of the earth, but also calls us to proclaim it to our own children. Notice it says, posterity shall serve him, families will worship him, it will be told to a coming generation, to a people yet unborn. John Calvin says of those words, the psalmist here confirms that since the fathers will transmit the knowledge of Christ's benefit to their children, the name of God will always be renounced. He says, let it be observed that care and diligence in propagating divine truth are here enjoined upon us that it may continue after we're removed from this world as the Holy Spirit here prescribes it a duty incumbent upon all the faithful to be diligent in instructing their children. There may always be one generation after another to serve God. Psalm 22 prescribes it, a duty incumbent upon us to teach our children the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. Calvin goes on to speak of, of the sin of those who have no problem burying the remembrance of it in eternal silence by neglecting to speak of it to their children or by assuming that, that somebody else will speak of it to them. Psalm 22 includes in the great commission work of the church making disciples in our own homes by catechizing our children, bringing them to church, teaching them the scriptures, singing with them the songs of Zion, having family worship and doing it consistently, teaching them to hide God's word in their hearts that they might love this gospel of Psalm 22 and of all the scriptures. So moms and dads, don't underestimate the importance of the work that God has entrusted to you, even as you perhaps struggle in the the pews with your little ones. Psalm 22 reminds us that we are doing kingdom work. We're doing the work of Christ, and he's honored by it. That's actually the last point that I want to make from Psalm 22. It speaks of the gospel going to the nations. It speaks of, of the gospel even being proclaimed to our own children. But one of the things that we must not miss is the centrality of the public worship of God's people in all of this. 
Verses 22 through 26 and Hebrews chapter 2's use of those verses teach us that when the congregation of God's people gather to, to hear the proclamation of the king and to sing the songs of Zion, that Christ himself is there with them, leading us in worship. We see in this psalm, word, sacrament, song, with Christ himself as the mediator of it all. And, and in the context of this psalm, it is out of this that the evangelization of the nations and the discipleship of our children flows. It's out of what happens in verses 22 through 26 that what we read in verses 27 to 31 happens. Here we're reminded that worship fuels mission. Edmund Clowney called this doxological Evangelism, as we're worshiping God for what he's done in Christ, confessing that the lamb who was slain is worthy of our praise, that joyous doxology spills over out of us and fuels our mission. In fact, it is even part of it, as in 1 Corinthians 14. It's the worship of God's people that causes those unbelieving visitors among them to stand in awe. Doxological evangelism, proclaiming Christ and praising his glory, and God uses that, as we saw even in Psalm 96 that we sang earlier, he uses that as a witness to the nations, and as a witness also to our children, even as the worship of God's people, as we see it in verses 22 to 26, is a witness to the nation, so it is also one of the primary means by which God shapes and forms and teaches our children. As Danny Hyde, the URC pastor, has, has said in his little book on children in worship, he says, public worship is the nursery of the Holy Spirit. The context in which he creates true saving faith in them. And so we bring our children with us to worship. It is the most important thing we do to worship our, our triune God who saved us. And so the most important thing we do with regard to our children is to train them to worship the triune God of grace. Do not underestimate the cumulative effect of of weekly morning and afternoon worship over the lifetime of your child. Or of daily family worship in, in the home, the lifetime of your child. These are the means by which God causes his kingdom to advance not only to the ends of the earth, but also to the end of the age. As generation after generation is raised in Christian nurture to the glory of our triune God of grace. I'm reminded in Psalm 22 that this king who suffered in our place is worth it and desires by these means to satisfy us, verse 26, and enliven our hearts. The psalm speaks of the suffering and glory of the king and the great privilege we have of hearing and proclaiming that suffering unto glory and the gospel of our Lord Jesus to the nations around us and to our children among us as we hasten on toward the ends of the earth and the end of the age. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, the one who fought this great battle on our behalf, who was forsaken, that we might never be, at whose cry you answered in his resurrection ascension where he was given the nations, assuring us that all the families of the nations will worship before you. 
Help us, Lord, to rejoice in that privilege, to labor to see that privilege extended to unreached peoples throughout the world, and even to teach our children to rejoice in the immeasurable privilege we have of gathering in the presence of Christ who preaches to us and leads us in song and feeds us at his table. Lord, we pray that our children would respond to this in faith and that all the families of the earth would too. We pray in Jesus' name.